2024, an election year like no other. From the candidates to the issues, from voter integrity and analysis, we'll discuss debates, trends, patterns, election laws, and more. This is Vote 2024, Path to the Polls. Welcome. I'm Bruce Hamilton, along with Daniel Cronrath, professor of political science at Florida State College, Jacksonville. This is the inaugural show, the first in a series of streaming podcasts during this interesting political year. We'll take a look at political trends, issues, candidates, debates. We'll talk quite candidly. Uh, as a matter of fact, unlike what we can do on a broadcast, we will be quite evocative. We'll take a look at those trends. Still, we'll remain giving you context, perspective, and focus, but maintain our integrity. Um, we'll have interviews, discussions. We'll talk about what's going on in the headlines. I am mindful that people hear what they think they want to hear these days. There is no political agenda. If you hear something that makes you think otherwise, then I suggest that you go to our YouTube channel because this streaming show will be broadcast a number of times and you can rehear it. Again, there is no political agenda. You will have ample opportunity to hear the replay and rehear what was said. It will also be on News for Jacks Plus and NewsForJax.com. So, the winner of the Iowa caucuses, which happens January 15th, the upcoming Monday, is a foregone conclusion. What, what is really at stake here? Is it a place in the wing should the Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump, suffer a spectacular fall in the legal system or otherwise? Daniel Cronrath, you want to weigh in? Well, first of all, Bruce, thanks for having me to this new format uh, and for the longer conversation that we're able to have. Uh, the one thing I want to reiterate, too, and I appreciate you laying out this venue in a little bit more of a, a lengthy format, uh, is the, the idea of principled nonpartisanship, where we may have our own personal political views, but we can get together and we could objectify what's going on in our politics today and try to provide a little bit of commentary which is informed and which is dispassionate. Uh, relative to your question, uh, I think that obviously the Iowa caucus is going to be a finish for second. And unlike a lot of people who will claim that style points do not matter in these elections, I think style points are really important next week. I think if, that if Governor DeSantis, considering the time, the energy, the money that he and his super PAC have placed on Iowa, if they were to, for example, if polls were to close in Iowa and you were to see a too close to call for second place, I think that that really is basically the beginning of the end for the DeSantis campaign for president. He does not have a lot of infrastructure anywhere else. He has put all of his eggs, so to speak, in the Iowa basket. And I think what has to be really discouraging for the governor at this point is unlike former UN Ambassador Haley, who has focused a lot on New Hampshire and her own state of South Carolina, she has seen uptick in the polls since she started to focus on those two locations. In fact, one recent poll in New Hampshire to follow Iowa, of course, in the process, uh, has her within single digits now of, of President Trump himself. So if she is able to overperform these initial expectations and somehow come close to Governor DeSantis or defeat Governor DeSantis, then, Bruce, I think that's where you really have finally the emergence of what national political figures and commentators have been wanting is the emergence of a two-candidate race. Donald Trump versus the alternative to Donald Trump. Now, to completely answer your question, if 
Governor DeSantis were to come out next week and his ground game was intact and he was able to really hit almost the 1,700 caucus site locations and his people were showing up first ballot choice for Governor DeSantis and he were to comfortably beat Governor Haley or former Governor Haley, UN Ambassador Haley in this, well, then you've got a different conversation taking place. Then you've got Ron DeSantis finding out what can he do in New Hampshire? Can he be a competitive third in New Hampshire? But again, it really tracks, unless he really, really overperforms in Iowa, Bruce, where does he go at this point? Everything is in the Iowa basket. Or, regardless of how he finishes next week, does he respectfully bow out of the race, get behind President Trump, and perhaps try to seek that coveted, as we know, Bruce, uh, former Governor Pence is not going to be his vice president this time around. He's not going to be chosen for that. Would, in fact, Ron DeSantis decide to try to play nice with President Trump at this point, earn his endorsement for vice president, and then set himself up as what he's wanted to be, the future of the party for a very long time? Okay, a couple of points here. When you look at the polls in Iowa, Donald yes. Trump has a commanding 50-plus point lead. Yeah. You did mention that Nikki Haley in New Hampshire has closed the gates a little bit. Now, you mentioned that Ron DeSantis, if he doesn't do well in Iowa, may very well have to hang it up. He did an interview on Fox News sometime late last week, and he said, well, I don't necessarily think that that's the case. Is he maybe not thinking real realistically? No, I think he knows. I think this is just candidate speak. I mean, no candidate's going to go out before an election and go, oh, by the way, if the people of Iowa don't do right by me, my campaign is over. Of course not. Nobody's going to say that. They're going to say that my campaign, even if we have a setback in Iowa, we have got a path moving forward. We've got uh, uh, this kind of investment in this state, this kind of infrastructure in this state. You're never just going to come out and say up front, hey, by the way, if my campaign, campaign has a disappointing night, it's done. In reality, however, we know that will be the case. Now, Nikki Haley also said something that's very interesting. Basically, the other day, she was talking about the difference between the Iowa caucuses, and we're going to talk about the importance of caucuses and how they play differently than primaries in just a second. Sure. But she said, you know, you've got two different personalities you've got to have here. And you've got to have one personality for the people of Iowa and a different personality for the people of New Hampshire. Right. And she took some heat, especially from Ron DeSantis, about that. Right. Uh, how do you think that played? And what was she talking about? Well, I mean, it doesn't bother me at all. I mean, I'm not necessarily a big proponent of, of former Governor Haley for being president of the United States. My personal views aside, I think what she's talking about is messaging. Okay, you could have the exact same platform of ideas, but if you go to Iowa versus going to California, you're going to have a different way of packaging and presenting these things, which is going to make you more attractive to voters. I don't find that disingenuous in any way at all. I call that campaigning. And the people of New Hampshire certainly are. What's the word? A little quirkier than the people of Iowa? They are, oh, oh, for sure. Iowa, when you look at the Iowa caucuses, either on the Democratic side or the Republican side, that is a core base election. In order to go and arrive at 7 o'clock Central Standard Time with one opportunity to vote, if you don't arrive on time, the doors go closed. You can't, you know, there's no eight days of early voting like we have in Florida. You must be there, okay? That's the caucus environment. New Hampshire's an open primary. Bruce, if we were a registered independent, Republican, Democrat, you can walk in on primary election day in New Hampshire, be a lifelong Democrat and say, today I'd like the Republican ballot, please, because maybe you're a Democrat who would like to thwart President Trump and his re-election campaign. You could go in as a lifelong Democrat, request the Republican ballot and vote for Nikki Haley or vote for Vivek Ramaswamy. You have that ability. Very different. Our first two contests caucus state which appeals to the base very very tight very very narrow confines in terms of who can participate versus an open primary which is almost dramatically the opposite in terms of how it's structured so, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about 
uh, how DeSantis and, and Haley have started going after each other. So we're doing this live streaming show because this is going to live in perpetuity, actually, on YouTube and on newsforjacks.com. So to give you some perspective, it's Monday, January 10th, and the two are going to debate tonight on CNN, and we'll talk about how the dynamics of how they're going after Donald Trump have changed in just a bit. Right. But let's talk about the difference between caucuses and primaries. So in the Iowa caucus, some people have said, look, the time for caucuses ha has come and gone because people have to show up at a specific time, and, and, and the nature of caucuses is so much different than primaries because during a primary, you can basically go to the polls all day. But at the Iowa caucuses, you show up at like 5.30, and the entire texture of a caucus is different. It's very different. You have to show up in a room. The room goes closed. You're in there with your neighbors who live nearby geographically. I think it's also important to note very, very quickly the difference between a Democratic caucus and a Republican caucus when it comes to Iowa. Okay? In the Republican caucus in Iowa, they only, only require to vote, seal their vote, and then the results of their vote are, are forwarded. In the democratic process, you actually have to be prepared to stand in a corner of the room visibly outside of, you know, in the United States, we have a tradition of what we call a secret ballot or an Australian ballot here in the United States. In a caucus setting for the democratic side, you literally have to publicly stand up in the room in front of your neighbors, in front of your family. Imagine you're an 18-year-old voting for the first time and you have to stand in a corner opposite of your parents because you have a different candidate. The Republicans don't require that, okay? You come, you are there, you, you get your instructions. I think in terms of turnout, when we talk about that, a lot of people say, well, where's the turnout when it comes to a caucus? In 2016, when the Republicans had a competitive field, remember there was uh, 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 Marco Rubio, our senator from Florida, there was uh, Donald Trump, there was Ted Cruz, who actually won. A lot of people forget Ted Cruz won the 2016 Republican caucus. It was about 30% of the vote out turned out for that on caucus night in Iowa. So you're talking about a historically important election for Republicans. Donald Trump is on the ticket, but this process is intense enough that less than one-third of the actual registered Republicans show up. Now, if I may, because we have a longer time, this is what's really critical for Governor DeSantis. Will he be able to get those individuals that he has been able to outreach to, which he has been able to door knock to, will they reliably show up for him on caucus night? Caucus night is as much about turnout as any other kind of primary election you're going to find, Bruce. Who shows up? The key to success in 2008, as you may recall, imagine you're a Democrat in Iowa, and here comes a guy for the first time, maybe you've never heard of him before. He's an African-American community organizer from Chicago. He's got a funny last name. He comes to Iowa, and lo and behold, Barack Hussein Obama is able to win the Iowa caucus, okay? Literally launching his campaign. Why was Obama able to do that, going against John Edwards, going against the Hillary Clinton and the Clinton machine? It's because he was able to get enough young college students to those caucus locations, flood those sites, and win that turnout. Can Governor DeSantis do the same? If he can, and if he can get that kind of presence, then we may be having a different conversation than I laid out to you previously. The other thing, Bruce, that I would say about these videos being held in perpetuity is you get to see how well our, our uh, predictions age. Mine typically age about as well as a glass of milk. But we will see how that turns out after, after tonight. And you mentioned Barack Obama, but if I remember my history, in that Iowa caucus, he initially was declared the winner, but didn't the caucus managers basically come back and say, oh, we miscounted, and there were eight precincts that weren't in the initial count, so they withdrew his victory. And as a matter of fact, yeah. this year, they've gone to Microsoft, and they're changing the way that they count the ballots as a result. Yeah. 
I mean, we don't have enough time. I mean, we're, we're you know, we're, we're oh, splitting hairs here. Sure. The, the 2008 Democratic caucus in Iowa and the 2020 Democratic mm -hmm. caucus in Iowa, absolute chaos. You know, it, it's kind of strange when you look at the Democratic Party and they typically over the last 20 years have defined every election as this election is an existential threat to our democracy. Yet the state in which they have go first has been a disaster twice out of the last 12 years. Yeah, and, and the only reason Iowa goes first is because it demands that it go first. It does. And, and it came out of chaos, what, the 1968 Democratic Convention? Right. And, and here are the criticisms, by the way, with this process, Bruce. Iowa and New Hampshire go first and second. They are very, very mindful states, very proud states. They take a, a lot of pride in meeting the candidates. You have to go there. You have to be on the ground there. You have to do the 99 counties. You have to eat the deep fried whatever they're serving to you at the Iowa Fair. All of those things that candidates have to do. But at the same time, particularly when you're looking at the Democratic Party, which prides itself as the party of diversity and inclusion, you're talking about two states which are very rural and very white starting out the nominating process. For, in fact, you really don't get, Nevada has a little bit in terms of uh, 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 Latino Americans entering the, the primary process, but it's really until you get to South Carolina that you get a large chunk of African American voters on the Democratic side who are registered Democrats to vote. So that's been a criticism. Outside of all the procedural things and the inclusivity of having to show up at seven o'clock, the fact that Iowa and New Hampshire are both basically same classic white engagement in terms of your voters has also become a, a, a criticism of the process. So you mentioned Latino and, and Hispanic voters uh, and black voters. It, it, there was a, the poll that just came out a couple of short days ago and they said, look, young voters, black voters and, and Hispanic voters really don't care about another Trump-Biden matchup, which if you were look today is what it appears it's going to be. And if they don't show up at the polls, that may predict the outcome of this election. And that's a bit foreboding. Yeah, and, and let me say this too uh, to your viewers. You know, I have the opportunity to teach a lot of 18 to 25 year olds political science, American government, state, local government. And one of the things that I hear from people in our generation and folks who are older um, is apathy. Why don't young people get more involved in politics? Why aren't they exercising the their franchise? Why aren't they trying to take advantage of the odds opportunities? But yet, when I talk to people who are 18, 19, 20, they will look at they will look at you and say, the 2020 election featured uh, Joe Biden who was going to be an octogenarian, a lifetime politician, versus a former reality television show host. We all criticized the choices that you gave us in 2020, and now here we are a generation again in 2024, and you're manifesting the same choices for us to make again. And if you're at that age group and you have to work, you have to go to school, maybe you have a young family, maybe you're in the military, you understand, Bruce, why they check the apathy box more often than not, because they feel like they're do doing battle with a system that they can't change. And, you know, my dad used to say, I don't like the choices. And, and people more often say, I never like the choices. And that apathy seems to grow in the United States, which will bring me to a question about Joe Biden and the tactic that he's been using uh, as his campaign mantra in just a second. So let me talk about the reliability uh, of the outcome in Iowa. Yeah. Uh, pardon me while I look at my notes here. Since 1976, only three of the seven U.S. presidents won the Iowa caucuses. Democrat Jimmy Carter in 1976, Democrat Barack Obama in... 2008 and Republican George W. Bush in 2000. Iowa caucus losers who went on to win the White House in that time span were Ronald Reagan in 1980, George H.W. Bush in 88, Bill Clinton in 92, and Donald Trump in 2016. And you mentioned this, Iowa makes up a minuscule share of the total number of Republican delegates nationwide. So the outcome in Iowa really doesn't show us much. Yeah, I'm probably going to punt this a little bit, and I apologize. I think slightly less than 2,000 Republican delegates and only 40 of them come from Iowa. 
So that's another common criticism here too, Bruce, is why are we starting the presidential process, the nomination process for president of the United States in two states that are so small? So that effectively by the time a lot of the larger states start to vote, Florida, California, New York, Texas, you know, we've already hit a process in the primary process where a lot of these states have already gone or have not voted, yet we already have a de facto nominee. All right, let me talk about the tactics that uh, DeSantis and, and uh, Nikki Haley are employing. Right now. Do me a favor, Caleb, I'm getting air in my ear right now. If you could take care of that, I'd appreciate it. So for the longest time, the two of them really didn't say much about Donald Trump and his politics. Sure. But of late, they're attacking him more. And they're saying, look, you go back uh, to what he promised four years ago, and he's not delivering. You take a look at, you know, the, the, the chaos that surrounds Donald Trump, and it's not going to bode well were he to be elected to the White House right now. Yeah. Is this tactic going to prove effective for, for them, or is it going to, you know, um, just alienate the voter base, which is something that they worried about? I think it would be more effective for Governor Haley to pursue this, this avenue of attack, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, she has positioned herself both with her donor class and with her supporters as being the alternative to former President Trump. So it's a lot easier for her to basically say, uh, this is someplace where I agree with Donald Trump, he let us down. This is someplace I disagree with Donald Trump, whether it be on foreign policy, say, where she tends to be more hawkish than Donald Trump. You know, she can come out as the alternative to Trump and have a little bit more of, of a cutting edge when it comes to that. DeSantis really has, Governor DeSantis really has a, a finer line to walk, okay? In some ways, and we can try to forget history, Governor DeSantis owes his election to statewide office in large part to the endorsement from Donald Trump. Uh, he helped him get over at the time, if you'll recall, former Commissioner Adam Putnam, who was the establishment favorite in Republican, uh, in the Republican Party in Florida. DeSantis at that time, and I'll apologize for this, has only been a two or a three-term uh, member of Congress, I believe. So that was a huge boost, a boost, by the way, which President Trump is frequent to remind Governor DeSantis of on the campaign trail. So how do you go after the guy who made you? What kind of line of attack can you find? I think what DeSantis is trying to say is I am the best of Donald Trump. I am also a guy who is a generation or two younger. And I'm a guy who is not carrying all of Governor uh, President Trump's baggage, i.e. 95 indictments, i.e. I am not nearly as vilified to the left or the center left of our politics as Donald Trump. At the same time, how can, I mean, this is the same pool of voters. How can DeSantis go after Trump voters? I don't know at this end of the day. My personal opinion, I think that DeSantis is going to try to increasingly fight Trump with kid gloves, okay? While you'll see Governor Haley come off and take the gloves off even further. Okay, take them off even further, but there's still this holy grail. Neither one of them will talk about insurrection. And you know what? There's a judge who basically said that the president is guilty of insurrection, not my words, but a judge who sits on the bench, that the president has crossed the line numerous times. Do either of those candidates deal with the reality that Donald Trump faces and take it to the voters? I don't know. If it's going to be one, it's going to be Governor Haley. And I think she'll probably wait until after this all clears out in order to, uh, uh, you know, assuming things go the way that I think they're going to go in the, in the next week or two, you're going to have a two-person race between Governor Haley and President Trump. Maybe then you'll see that take place. But here's the other challenge that both of these people have, both Governor DeSantis and, and, and former Governor uh, Haley or former U.N. Ambassador Haley. They both have to speak to a base which is still enamored with Donald Trump, to your point. Okay? And when you look back at Donald Trump's accomplishments to his base, he basically ran on, I would say, two or three core things, putting building the wall in Mexico, paying for it aside, which was a big thing. He ran on deep tax cuts, which in his first term in office, he got passed when he had a Republican majority. 
The other thing he ran on was conservative pro-life justices for the Supreme Court, Bruce. In one term, he turned over a third of the Supreme Court with young pro-life justices. Now, no matter what Governor DeSantis and what Governor Haley have to say, that is going to be, that is fresh in Republican primary voters' minds. Not only, yeah, Donald Trump may be outrageous, he may say things like this, he may say things like that, but at the end of the day, when I want my tax cuts and I'm a pro-life Republican, how has President Trump led me wrong? And that's going, to be, that's going to be on the minds of a lot of Republican primary voters. All right, so you go back to the election, and come November, I think about Daddy George Bush, sure. okay? There was a political pundit, James Carville, who said, it's about the economy, stupid. And that brings me to President Biden. Yeah. So he offers this argument, standing not far from Valley Forge, and he blasts President Trump and says, democracy is at stake. And you know what? That is a valid argument in the minds of very many people. Sure. Mitt Romney comes out and he says, Mr. President, may very well be, but January 6th is far away in the minds of the people. That is not an argument that you should be making right now. Yeah. Is this upcoming election really about the economy? Does President Biden need to change his strategy, especially in light of the fact that just the other night, Donald Trump came out and said, his words, I want the economy to crash. Yeah. Tough to walk back words like that, but if there's anybody who can, it's going to be Donald Trump because Trump's just a master at it. Look, I, I think if I were advising President Biden, and of course we had talked before this broadcast a little bit, we know former President Obama has been talking to President Biden about how to get his campaign uh, basically jump-started based upon where his low approval ratings are. And we had talked about one of Biden's skills, Bruce, is that he does kind of have uh, an organic sense of empathy. And I think what President Biden, if I was giving him advice to do right now, would be to say this. Listen, in my administration, we've got a lot of numbers to be proud of, okay? But the one thing that I appreciate as a president of the United States, as a guy from Scranton and a guy at Wilmington, is that you don't feel it. And that's going to be a key, a key thing. You can be proud of the metrics less than 4% unemployment. You can look at all the jobs added numbers you want. But if the American people across the board are not feeling that, if regardless of what you say per inflation is as a percentage is slowing, if the American people still feel like their eggs are X and their, their gasoline is Y and all of these prices are above where they were a year or two years ago, let me give you another quote since we went back in the time machine, Bruce, when you talked about James Carville. What was it that former Ron, uh, Re President Reagan said after his second election in 1984? Um, are you better off now than you were four years ago? How many Americans come 2024 are going to feel like they're better off than they were in 2000? Now, understand, we had a pandemic at the time, uh, um, you know, uh, covering all that. But it's going to be very, very hard. If you still have a bunch of Americans out there who are paycheck insecure, if you still have, at last estimates, 70 million Americans who even after the Affordable Care Act, Bruce, they may have some sort of health care coverage, but they can't afford to go to the doctor because of the out-of-pocket expenses of the deductible. That's a hard case to make that just because the Dow Jones Industrial Average is, is, is teetering at a certain number, Bruce, Americans don't feel that. Most everyday working stiffs who are listening to uh, you know, right-wing conservative talk radio, they're not looking at their investments on a daily basis. They're looking at their, their, their kitchen tables and whether or not they feel the economy is getting better. Can, can Biden be more empathetic to the, to the public? That would be my advice to Joe Biden. So statistics don't matter. I want to see my bank account go up so that I know one day I can retire. I want to see that I can walk away from the grocery store and still have money in my pocket. I want to see that I've got a comfort level where I'm not living paycheck to paycheck or I'm having to borrow in order to live day to day.
Yeah, and it's really, really hard to do that, too, when you talk about the, back, the backdrop of what, what's dominating on our news coverage, and deservedly so. You know, right now in the United States, America has a homelessness epidemic. It's worse than I can remember in my lifetime living, okay? So it's very, very easy to look at your own personal economic situation, turn on the national news, and they see images of thousands of people coming across the border or people who are living in tent cities in the United States cities. It almost creates a sense, Bruce, in a way of camaraderie. And it almost creates a sense of like, wow, if these individuals have found themselves where they're at, how many paychecks am I away with my family from potentially being in the same situation? And this is regardless of whatever kind of statistic you're going to put out there about the unemployment rate, where the Dow Jones is, and all of those other great things. Um, it's just a reality of the situation. I think that Joe Biden still, at this point as a candidate, has that skill set. I think there is still an empathy point that Joe Biden can reach out and he, he can address people. Will he be able to do it? And then at the end of the day, he's going to be going against one of the best showmen that we've had in modern politics. The one thing you've got to say about Donald Trump is I've never seen an individual be able to sell his own brand better than Donald Trump. Will Biden be able to be charismatic enough, funny enough to overcome all that? And by the way, another question for our, our viewers today, do we even suspect we will have a presidential debate this year? Will, I mean, will Biden and Trump even choose to have a presidential debate? Or will this become the first election in the modern era since really the... the, the after the 60 debate on television with Kennedy and Johnson, or Kennedy and Nixon, and they took a little bit of time off, will these two even bother to like appear before the American public and debate ideas, or will they basically say, nah, we're better off at home where we're at. You know, we're not going to do this. Is there any chance that somebody could come out of the woodwork? Any surprise? I mean, if you listen uh, to folks on the Democratic side, you know, there's this, this conspiracy theory that if, if Joe Biden uh, were to, um, some have said right now that the president is in a state of cognitive decline. I'm not a medical doctor. I can't give a diagnosis. I don't even know Joe Biden. That being said, if he were to get worse, uh, if he were to become less cognitive, um, there have been suggestions that the governor of California, for example, that one Gavin of the Newsom. Gavin Newsom, that one of the reasons why he had this debate hosted by Sean Hannity with our governor was basically to test his mettle to see what he would look like as a presidential candidate. And I will tell you, most people who watched the Hannity debate, I don't know if you got a chance to do it, if you were a Democrat, you can see why you thought Newsom won, and if you were a Republican, you could see why DeSantis won. Uh, but at the end of the day, I've heard that suggested. Outside of that, who else would get in the race at this point? I just don't know of anybody, because every Democrat from Bernie Sanders to AOC, they've been behind this president since really before he even declared they said he, they were going to be supporting. One final question. We have the most unproductive Congress in history. Is it time for somebody to wake up and say, get to business, is it time for somebody to wake up and say, the things that matter to the American people needs to be tended to to Congress, and it's time for you to wake up to some of the realities of this world? Yeah, I think so, or else we're gonna have to come out with a stick. You know, there's always that carrot and stick approach. You know, if you do my bidding, I will vote for you. Well, what happens if you refuse the will of the American people? You decide not to pass legislation, which is all in our benefit. What if one of the things I've been following very closely, I don't know if you've seen this, Bruce, is a reluctance of Democratic and Republican leadership to stop uh, uh, buying stocks while they're actually in office. You know, being able to control industries through committee hearings and legislations, and then literally buying stocks based upon where they believe these industries are gonna move up and down relative to their influence. And, and just to give you an idea, and I know this is, is, is a little bit off topic, but if you think about the popularity of this, one, the American people in general across the board do not think that members of Congress should be engaged in insider trading. Okay, that's number one. Number two, when was the last time, and just think about this at home, that you saw AOC and Matt Gates agree on a piece of legislation saying that we need to cre 
clean up the corruption in Washington, D.C. and get money out of our politics, only to have the party leadership of both parties refuse that kind of offer. So whether it be that, Bruce, whether it be a suggestion on introducing term limits, which are very, very popular with the American people, I would agree with you. This Congress right now and the last several Congresses appear tone deaf, okay? Because the reality is, is these districts are so gerrymandered now in the United States that unless you were to get some sort of spirited primary opposition, take locally, for example, if these districts were to remain the same, Congressman Bean and Congressman Rutherford do not have to worry about a primary election any time in their political futures. It's just not going to happen. Moreover, they don't have to worry about a general election either because of the way the districts are drawn. The majority of congressional districts out of the 435 across the United States are exactly like we have in Jacksonville. There is no opportunity for these people to actually feel the heat of the voter. And recall, the framers of the Constitution wanted the House to be closest, the closest body to the people. Today, they basically operate with impunity because of the nature of their districts. I'm sorry, Bruce, that was a really, really long answer. No, it's yeah, perfectly yeah. fine. I leave you with these thoughts. My personal opinion, I don't think the terms Democrat and Republican mean what they used to. I don't think that on Capitol Hill, for the most part, there are true politicians who understand the meaning of debate and compromise. Our next edition of live streaming of Vote 2024, the path to the polls will be next Tuesday at 10.15. The Supreme Court on Donald Trump, caught between a rock and a hard place? Does the fact that Donald Trump shaped the court mean that influences their decisions? Will Clarence Thomas recuse himself? Will the Supreme Court find a way to sidestep the issue when it comes to presidential immunity. Appreciate you watching. If you want to take a closer look, this live streaming edition repeats itself on News for Jack's channel on YouTube and at newsforjacks.com. I appreciate your time and I appreciate your feedback. Have a great day. See why every day more people are choosing News for Jacks, Northeast Florida and South Georgia's number one source for local news.